Blog Talk Radio. But 
It's just that it just has that feel of a little different to like the government shutdown, but we're still doing our jobs. Well, I mean, you could say how well we're doing or poorly we're doing our jobs. I know most people would say it's for the latter, but well, technically it's a meat side job. True. Flowing gets paid. And, and Flo's okay with that, poor thing. So, not as great as your job that you just came back from. Yeah. Busy AU Athletics weekend. Uh, every game will probably be in the rain. Field hockey at 11 a.m. and then men's soccer at one. As they try to bounce back from a loss to Navy, first time they've lost in regular season Patriot League play since 2011, which was Holy Cross. I believe as of a month, um, uh, yeah, 11 months. Well, November, so 22 months ago, they lost to Holy Cross. But it, of course, last time they lost, they ended up hosting. Granted, they hosted the tournament. Two years in a row. Navy's a good team, though. They cool. they return their entire starting lineup. They don't, they don't start a single freshman. They bring a couple off the bench, but they they are good. They're definitely a team that watch out for. Beat Boston, who a lot of people were saying was going to be one of the best in the Patriot League. But baseball, AL and NLCS is start tonight. And we were, I was actually right with a prediction. I was very proud of that. The Cardinals, Dodgers, and that's going to be very exciting because a lot of people are saying that this is one of the best hitting Cardinals teams. Mm. Do you agree with that? Uh, there's definitely it's a fair. It, it's just, we've seen this over the last few years. Uh, you know, they don't have like the huge bet. The best guy in the lineup probably is Matt Holiday, and he's a very good hitter. But there's no like big bopper. No Albert Pools. No Albert Pools. No uh, big slugger. No one. But it's a very, it's a very top to bottom, a very rounded lineup for St. Louis Club. And of course, they knocked off the Pittsburgh Pirates in the NLDS. And they were good friend Mike Pompeo, our resident Pittsburgh Pirates fan, and we were supposed to be joined off by Colin Shakespeare, but he decided to ditch us and go to the movies. But Mike's on the show. How are you doing, man? Hey, what's up, man? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm good. Are you coping with the loss well? Yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm doing fine because we took the Cardinals five games in the NLDS, which is, I think, a lot more than anyone else expected, probably more than anyone on that team expected for them to do. Uh, So I'm doing fine, and I'm just happy I got to experience that, go to the uh, first playoff game when we knocked Cincinnati out. That was great. How was that? I understand you were there when the, the wild card game was going on. Yeah, I was there. I left D.C. at about uh, 11.30. I got there, uh, basically went straight to the stadium, was there from the, when the gates opened till uh, when the game was over. And uh, that was definitely the craziest baseball game of my life, obviously. I've only been to one other playoff game. That was when the Nats played the Cardinals uh, last year, and the Nats got destroyed uh, eight to one, and it was weird because they were kind of similar games uh, because the Nationals hadn't had a playoff game since what, like somewhere in the 30s, held in DC, and the Pirates hadn't had one since '92. So it was a similar type feel, you know, first uh, playoff game that those two cities had seen in a while. But the one in Pittsburgh for me, obviously, was way crazier because everyone there has actually sit through 20 seasons of losing when the Nationals just didn't have a team. So this is the first 
Pittsburgh playoff game in your lifetime. Yeah, first Pittsburgh playoff game in my lifetime. Yeah. Of course, it was and, they changed the system, so it was a one gamer, but it was still special. I would say, how was it the atmosphere from when you got to the game to after when guys were like jumping off the bridge into the Allegheny River? Just that whole day, what was it like? Yeah, that whole day was crazy because I probably I didn't sleep for like five hours or, or whatever. I, I mean, I only slept for five hours that night. I got there. Uh, I was with my cousin, my uncle, and my other cousin, Joe showed up later. But me and my cousin were probably in the seats screaming from 6 o'clock until the game ended. Um, and you could just tell everybody was so on edge the whole time. I've never actually seen people go to that stadium and pay as much attention as they did, which is great in what you're supposed to do. Um, but, yeah, you're right. People were jumping off the bridge and everything. And uh, I walked out to the river walk after, and our river, we had so many boats in there. People had, like, canoes decorated as pirate ships and stuff. And everybody was really into it. You had people walking around in full-on, like, Jack Sparrow-type pirate suits. And that was great to see. And so what what made this Pittsburgh team good? Because in past years, they've had similar lineups, and they've had almost wild-card seasons. So then they've always fallen off after the All-Star break. What was it about this year's team that made them actually make the playoffs. You mean, why, yeah, why we were able to sustain uh, the, right. how we were doing good? I'd say one of the big things uh, was that they were they had a lot more bullpen depth. And you, you could tell. Uh, they just kept cycling guys and adding guys and everything, and the bullpen remained pretty strong. And even when Gurley got hurt, that was a big – everyone was like, oh, no, what are we going to do? Uh, Melanson actually stepped up for the large part of that until, like, the very end uh, is when he kind of went back to his old ways. But uh, you could just tell that they, they would put guys in, like, Brian Morris, who was a starter before. They just threw him in the setup role, and the guy did fine. And then we even picked up guys at the end, like Farnsworth, who actually helped out. Farnsworth, I'm pretty sure, had a save. And... Justin Wilson, they had two left-handers. They had Justin Wilson and Tony, Tony Watson going, which I think was uh, huge because before it was just Watson. And so once you put your left-handed specialist in, we were done for the game. So they could bring in a lefty at any time, basically, and we have to take the right-hander out of the pen, which I never liked. I always like having two lefties in the pen. So that was probably uh, a big deal, I think. So bullpen death combined with they just got – some better people, and they had some growth from within. Marseille obviously got better. Walker probably was a little better than – Walker was better than last year, not better than the year before, I'd say. But they got Martin, which helped a lot for stopping the running game. That was huge because they went from Barajas to Martin, um, which is a huge step up, if you ask me. And then you had Alvarez uh, have his career year, which definitely helped especially home-run-wise, home run, home run driving and runs and everything. Who's your favorite player on the team? I definitely have to ask that. Yeah, my favorite player on the team is actually uh, my boy Jose Tabata, the fourth, the fourth outfielder. Um, I just like what he does. I don't think he gets enough credit sometimes. Uh, it's probably one of the reasons I like him. Uh, guy can definitely steal, steal bases for you. Decent arm for right field. Not bad. Uh, it's probably average. Um, guy definitely has some of the best back control. 
he's like he's like a a guy that just tries to go away all the time, which I love. Go the other way. Um, but then you know the problem was like he wasn't pulling the ball. I think they tried to mess with him, tried to make him into more of a power hitter. Didn't really work. They wanted him to pull the ball more, just not his style. Now he's kind of back to his old ways. And for a while, um, when you had Marte hurt, Cabot was a big run producer. And uh, I don't think people noticed, but he he definitely down the stretch in September played a big part for that team being able to uh, sustain sustain themselves and put them in the playoffs. Uh, in your opinion, does um, Dexter McCutcheon win the NL MVP this year? In my opinion, yeah, I give it to McCutcheon. Because uh, who else are you going to give it to? Are you going to give it to Kershaw? I'm probably not going to want to give it to another pitcher. So, really, look at all the teams that kind of made it in the playoffs far. Does anyone stick out on uh, the Braves to you? Not No one sticks out to me on the Braves. Um, Cardinals are just a solid team all around. I don't give it to anyone on that team. And then you look at uh, the Reds are out of it. I don't, no one on the Reds really sticks out to me anyway. Uh, the only other guy that, like, comes up in my mind that really, like, changes a team is Puig. And Puig didn't play for the first month, month and a half. So, I would go McCutcheon over Puig any day, even though I think Puig is solid and he'll probably win an MVP uh, coming up in a couple of years. But right now, I'd have to give it to McCutcheon for turning around uh, a franchise that lost for 20 seasons. And the guy also had a solid year. I, mean, I don't even remember the last time he was batting below 300. Started off, everyone was like, oh, his power was gone. Everyone was kind of scared. Power might have been down, but the guy was still drawing so many walks, which is, I think, overlooked for him. Um, hitting 300 the whole year, driving in runs when Marte got on. That was a big thing. It was always like beginning of the year was like Marte get on, McCutcheon bring him in. That was huge. Uh, so McCutcheon, I thought, really stepped up. He plays good defense. I don't know, sometimes, you know, I think it's a little overrated. His arm's probably not where it could be for a center fielder. But he gets to so many balls, it doesn't really matter. Um, and, yeah, I, I think McCutcheon should win it. So where did the Pirates go from here? Had a, one of the best seasons in the franchise history. And now uh, they end up losing to a Cardinals team that you were saying is, is very good all around. Where do the Pirates go from here? I think from here, I actually think it's going to be uh, pretty tough to win that division next year. Not saying it can't happen. Uh, it depends on a lot of things. But just just looking now, they got some guys that they got to resign. They got some holes to fill, especially in the pitching staff. They're going to have to uh, put some things back together in that rotation. Uh, luckily, they have Luriano locked up for another year, so that's huge. Um, and they still got the main guys in there, but they're going to need to build a frame around those guys, the core. Um, and I, I would also say that we probably won a lot of close games this year. That I, I at least I noticed that, and uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to pull those out next year. A lot of that depends on yeah your closer, your bullpen down the stretch, and everything. We got a year out of Melanson that was like probably we'll never see out of him again. Not even I don't think we'll even see a year close out of him again like that. So I think really will be what he is. He'll probably have a. Earned run average around 
to be able to string together um, however many saves, I don't know, probably around 35 at least. And uh, that'll help us out. But they're going to be – I'd be looking for a setup, man, because just the way Melanson pitched down the stretch, I think we're seeing the magic and the luck kind of run out on them. So if they can string together another setup, man, they'll be able to pull out more of those close games, which they did. And that'll be great, you know, because I don't want to see us turn into, like, what the, what happened on the Orioles this year. It's kind of like the same thing is what I noticed. We kind of look like them. So, you know, they, they, they didn't make the playoffs this year, um, so they got to rebuild. We probably will have to put some flames around it, too. But we'll see what happens. You know, anything can happen. Uh, this management's done a decent job of putting guys – Putting guys on the team, like, down the stretch this year that they didn't have in the beginning. Because they went from a starting rotation that had Jonathan Sanchez in it, and they brought up Cole and all that stuff. So they, this organization is finally bringing people uh, up when they need to, and they're also adding guys at the right times. Like, they waited on Bird and Morneau, which was nice, because before – they would kind of panic at the trade deadline, and I don't want to see that. So if they can, they can kind of say, I like when they say hands off and just let everybody, you know, work it, let everything work itself out, have guys come back from injuries and everything. So if we can do that and not try to do too much, I, I like our chances next year. Still think the Cardinals are going to be tough to beat in the division, and the Reds will definitely come back strong. So it's, hopefully it's us three just battling it out again. He's my popular Pittsburgh Pirates fanatic. Are you nervous that they're going to have a season like the Nationals did, make a playoff run, and then have a lot of hype and expectation this upcoming season, and then they end up not making the playoffs? Yeah, I'm definitely nervous because, you know, baseball is one of those funny sports. It's like that. Uh, you can be really good, look great on paper, get some key guys, and then those key guys, like the Nationals, got span. Those key guys, you know, they just you just don't know what they're going to give to you. So if you kind of have one guy in your lineup and he can't set the table or something at the top, or you don't you don't get the power you wanted out of some guy, or it's like a year where everybody has career years and then they're all kind of down the next year. Like what I'm what I was talking about with Melanson, kinda. If you have all that kind of go against you at once the next season after you play really well, uh, that's a thing I think we see more often than we think, and. We're, they are going to lose, uh, like, Burnett's not tied up. And he he pitched great for us. I, I, he's kind of definitely on the decline now. But he pitched great for us. And probably going to get, like, a worse A.J. Burnett every year. Not that that's going to be a bad pitcher, but it's still going to be a worse pitcher every year. So the way I look at that is, yeah, I'm kind of nervous as to what these guys can, like, really put together as they have some of the veterans start aging. Especially Let me share here two questions. Yeah, yeah, um, with them. What does this mean for the city of Pittsburgh, and who do you think is going to win the World Series? Okay. This, this mental, wait, you mean, what, what does the Pirates season mean for the city of Pittsburgh? Yeah, Pirates playoff run, Buck, yeah. Buck Nation, all that. What is this year, what does this mean to the city? And... Who's your prediction to make the World Series? Okay, yeah, this meant a lot for that city, actually. Uh, this made baseball relevant again, which is sort of crazy that this, this season happened when the Steelers happened to be 0-4 at the time. Because before, 
you would have Steelers spring training start. There's nobody at Pirate Games. Everybody's at Steelers spring training. Everybody's sitting at home watching Steelers preseason for some reason because I don't know why we watch preseason football. I hate it. But that's what people would do. And now you had people interested, and it's also great that you got people wearing gear everywhere. You would see people wearing pirate jerseys, shirts, hats everywhere, which is awesome. And it really helps that you got a guy like the Cutting that they they built this team around, and everybody loves them. So uh, that's that was like perfect that it happened that way, and we finally got a baseball team to rally around. And definitely going to see ticket sales go up, season ticket holder uh, memberships going to go up. So that'll be awesome, and we'll have more people at the ballpark night in night out, and uh, it's just really an overall good thing, you know. They don't have to put on fireworks displays and bobbleheads to get people to come to the stadium now, uh, which those things are great, but people just want to see winning baseball and bring them out, and that's finally what they were able to do. So at least for next year, they're going to have a big interest because, unfortunately, the Pirates actually lost, like, my generation. Uh, A lot of people dropped out because you really didn't see good players or winning teams for 20 years. The last easily competitive team that I actually remember was in 2003. And if you think how long ago that really is from now, you know, if it's 10 years, I I can remember the manager and, like, five players. I just remember that they were kind of good, and then they traded everybody away because they weren't going to make it. So we've seen, like, some really, really awful uh management work from some offices and then you really realize why people were fired and why this staff been able to uh, be successful after you look at every, all the moves that these guys have made over the years. So people are definitely paying attention and they're going to go out to the stadium and support which we saw this year, so it looks great. And as far as who I think is going to win the World Series, I definitely think that uh, L.A. sets up really nice with that pitching staff. And we got offense that just keeps coming. But I think the best staff, I mean, yeah, I mean, the best staff is definitely LA. The best uh, lineup, I would put Boston up there. So I'm hoping it's LA Boston. And then uh, I actually think Kershaw will be able to fly the bats with Boston enough. We'll have uh, the Dodgers World Series again. Y'all see All right, you ready for it? Ah, so you have the Dodgers winning it all. I got the Dodgers winning it all, and I got Yasiel Puig MVP. Okay, you heard it here first. He's Mike Poppy, our Pittsburgh Pirates fanatic. Thank you once again for taking the time joining us here on the show. Hope to have you back next time when the Pirates hopefully make the playoffs next year or for spring training or any other baseball talk. That'd be awesome. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right, he's Mike Poppy, a Pittsburgh Pirates fanatic, good friend of Colin Siegfried, another diehard fan. We've not had enough of a dire fan. Talking about the going to the moon. Exactly. We'll continue to dig up the dirt this weekend, but we'll come back. We'll go to a break, and when we come back on the other side. Flo gives predictions who will make the World Series. And we'll Curtis Harris for Hoops History talk about the Free Spirits 30 for 30. You're listening to Fanatic Radio, blogtalkradio.com. It's Fanatic Radio. Get ready to break the pain. <laughs> the reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's cars. Fanatic Radio on Blog Talk Radio. 
As good as it gets. The reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's colors. Fanatic Radio on Blog Talk Radio. Oh, you are living la vida loca. Welcome back to Fanatic Radio. My girl is Ben Florence at Beanflow360.com. I'm to buy it. And ATV, we're not simulcasting today, though, because it is raining cats and dogs and any other animals and any other thing as we're under a monsoon. Funny mention, um, my brother was calling me out wondering if everything, like, the major flooding was going on. And I'm assuming, eh, that's probably it, but he said, apparently on Twitter, people were making jokes that they're building an ark now the government is shut down. So, raising hopefully this weather will, uh, uh, hopefully will clear up for the next week. Because we are coming out fall break here at American University, but we are still, we're still working hard for the money. And we had Mike Pompeo of our Pittsburgh Pirates, Jolly Roger Fanatics. He was on earlier to talk about his, uh, the Buck Nation and the seasons they had. You can listen to that podcast on iTunes. We're now joined by Curtis Harris of ProHoopsHistory.com, lover of all things old school basketball. He joined us in our weekly conversation. He's Curtis Harris, creator of ProHoopsHistory.com and lover of, lover of all things basketball, the old school way. He joins us now on Fanatic Radio. Curtis, thank you once again for uh, taking the time to do this. Yeah, no problem. Glad to join you. I was wondering, uh, to start off, the Free Spirits, the 30 for 30 on the Spirits of St. Louis, when ESPN announced that they were going to make a video or make a documentary, about something that you are very passionate about. What were your original thoughts of it? Uh, well, actually, I actually came along uh, pretty late in the ball game of knowing about it. Uh, it wasn't until last week that I actually knew they were going to do a 30, 30 for 30 on it. So, uh, I mean, once I found out about it, I was pretty excited because, um, yeah, this is like my, 
that this is like my bread and butter. This is what I love. Um, the history of the basketball, especially the ABA years, uh, that great stuff that a lot of folks don't really know about. And so do you think they did a good job, uh, Director uh, Daniel Four? Do you think he did a good job of portraying the whole culture and lifestyle of the American Basketball Association? Uh, yeah, I think he did a good job. Uh, the problem with anything like this is just that uh, they only have one hour to really talk about something that can go on uh, for just an incredible amount of time. Uh, but just for the one hour they had, they, I think they did a pretty good job uh, kind of showing the, the craziness of the team, but also some of the unexpected unexpected success that they had, even though they were, they were around for just two years. But, uh, yeah, overall, definitely a good job, but uh, obviously could have gone on for at least an hour and a half more. They, they definitely have the material to go on for oh, quite a while. All right, and uh, Terry Polito, author of uh, Loose Balls, The uh, Short Wildlife of the American Basketball Association, is a, basically a book. He compares the uh, the ABA to a jazz and the NBA to a symphony. Do you stand by that statement? And if so, what is it? what was it about the ABA that made it so crazy? I mean, the, the general comparison, I think, actually holds up uh, pretty well, although I think the NBA was – it's a little more jazz than he gives them credit for, but obviously the ABA was a lot jazzier than the NBA was uh, because the you know ABA started in 1967, and uh, like right from the get go, their whole plan was just to be kind of as outlandish, as notable, as different as possible to get attention. So guys were coming in with uh, the big hair, uh, of course the red, white, and blue ball, the, the three point line. I said they were definitely trying to do things to get people's attention, uh, on, with on the court play, but also with the uh, with the gimmicks they would have for, to try to draw fans, like the the giveaway nights and um, that the kind of dancers they had on the court just totally um, out of this world, really, when you looked at it uh, from that time period. But uh, yeah, the comparison just, definitely holds up, particularly from the not so much as how the players actually played, but how the leagues were managed. The, the comparison definitely holds up. And it's funny that you mentioned the other giveaway night because uh, they, it's funny that they actually, watching the documentary, they actually did stuff like that because most pop culture fans, they would see the movie Semi-Pro with Will Ferrell and think, oh, it's just Hollywood making up, you know, wrestling a bear or Jackie Moon trying to jump over the 67 feet of ball girls. But they actually did that stuff in the ABA. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't that far from the truth. Uh, they may have touched it up just a little bit, but uh, they weren't adding too much to it. Uh, they were definitely doing uh, crazy gimmicks like that to draw fans up to the to the games, even though um, as much as they tried to draw people, they still had a hard time getting fans to most of the stadiums, though. Was it because that of the small markets a lot of these teams in the league were in? Well, I think it's. Well, a few a few franchises never had a problem. Uh, Indiana, Kentucky, uh, eventually the Nets uh, when they were still in Long Island. Uh, so some franchises never had any problem whatsoever drawing fans. But uh, some of them, like the like the Houston Mavericks or the uh, the teams in Memphis, and then of course the Spirits in St. Louis, uh, they had a really hard time drawing fans. I think it was because the ABA was seen as kind of a minor league uh, kind of league, and also. Uh, I mean, yeah, it just like it was only around for a few years, so people were used to the NBA. So if they wanted to see like real pro basketball, they thought we should go see the NBA. All right, what made what makes Saint Spirit Saint Louis such a perfect team to do this? Because I, I understand they were trying to represent a team that was the last standing in the ABA, because obviously the four teams went to the NBA, and the only two were yeah. Saint Louis and the Kentucky Colonels. But what made 
the St. Louis team more of sort of the wild, crazy characters in this movie. It's kind of like the perfect storm of events because, uh, like you said, four teams joined the NBA, so the Nets, the Nuggets, Spurs, and the Pacers, and they had actually been around since the – in some form, they had been around since the beginning of the ABA. And uh, the Colonels, unfortunately, they got cut because uh, their owner didn't want the team to join the NBA, and actually uh, his name was John Brown. He actually ended up buying the Boston Celtics in the, after a couple of years. But, uh, yeah, the Spirits, perfect storm of events where uh, they had – they were previously in Carolina as the Cougars, but they kind of fell out, so their owners sold the team to these couple of guys who were really just looking to get into uh, pro basketball. So they bought the Cougars, moved them to St. Louis, and they were looking to just make a splash. Like, they wanted to just get as many young, exciting players as possible. And, um, like, they took the ABA maxim and just stretched it, out to its, stretched it out to its absolute limit. So, yeah, they got the crazy characters like Fly Williams and Marvin Barnes, and uh, it is definitely the craziest team that ever played basketball. It's interesting that uh, that team upset the the Nets, the team with uh, yeah. Julius Irving on it. Yeah, no, they uh, yeah they only won about 30 games during the regular season, uh, the Spirits in their first year in uh, 1975. And uh, the Nets, uh, they were the defending champions in the ABA, so they had Dr. J and a couple other good players like Larry Keenan and John Williamson, who were, uh, you know, all-star caliber players. But, yeah, the Spirits caught them. Uh, they as the season was going on, the Spirits really kind of gelled, uh, thanks to guys like Steve Jones and um, especially Freddie Lewis. Freddie Lewis was a probably like an eight-year veteran of the ABA by that point, and he had won three titles with the Pacers. So uh, he knew what it took to really uh, bring some leadership and that kind of steadying influence. And um, he he and Marvin Barnes really went off on the Nets. Uh, they were both averaged, I think, at least 25 points that series. And, uh, of course, Freddie hit the game on the shot for the series. So, yeah, they dethroned the Nets. Uh, but unfortunately, Freddie Lewis sprained his ankle the next round against the Colonels, so uh, they kind of bowed out at that point. And it's funny the, the next year they got a play, they got Moses Malone and a couple other good All Stars. It's surprising how a lot of the, the good players from the ABA ended up turning into great NBA players. Dr. J. Moses Malone, George Gervin. Mm-hmm. Was it well, so when um, the people were following the ABA? I guess when you're going back and doing your history, did people realize that these players had become these superstars that they're known for today? Oh, well, guys could tell that some of these players were just, uh, without a doubt, uh, they were the cream of the crop of uh, basketball players at that point. Because uh, I don't think anyone ever had any doubts that the ABA at its top level, like the top players in the ABA, uh, that they were, at, without a doubt, uh, they could take on the NBA. Uh, so guys like, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, Irving, uh, George Gervin, uh, even like Artis Gilmore, uh, players like that, Dan Issel, uh, like the first All-Star game in the NBA after the merger, there were 24 All-Stars in that game. Ten of them have played in the ABA. So that's almost half your All-Stars that come from the ABA. So um, uh, People knew uh, at the time that, yeah, these ABA players, like this, the stars in the ABA were just as good as the NBA. Uh, the problem would come, like maybe you got to the, the, once you get to the bench basically, like the sixth, seventh, eighth best player on the ABA team was not as good as the sixth, seventh, or eighth player in the NBA team. But uh, the starters, uh, I think any ABA team could take on any NBA team without a problem. Uh, they can come out just as comparable. So the Spirits of St. Louis, what would they compare to to an NBA franchise now? Oh, my God. Uh, they don't compare to anything, really. Uh, uh, man, I couldn't even imagine what an NBA team today would be like if they were anything close to Spirits. 
Like, cause they, they were just ridiculous even for an ABA team. So that's just what makes them so outlandish. Uh, I mean, the closest I could think to it is the, like the Portland Trailblazers from a decade ago. I mean, just off the top of my head. Uh, in terms of just ridiculous headlines you would hear about a team, although they did it for, you know, like the legal troubles they were having. But that's as close as I could think of a team that was just as uh, notable for non-basketball reasons as the Spirits. Did it add to sort of the drama, the fact that, a lot of the players had off-the-court issues, drug issues. Did it just add to the the overall theme of this team? Oh, yeah. I mean, it spoke to really what a lot of people feared what was happening with uh, basketball and in pro sports in general, where uh, up to the 70s, uh, players were basically uh, stuck on the team they were drafted by unless they happened to get traded. So uh, there was no free agency. Uh, but once... Uh, in the 70s, players in the uh, baseball, basketball, they had sued their leagues, and they had won the right to be free agents. So uh, players had a lot more freedom to move around and uh, sign big contracts, and um, salaries were escalating. And uh, the drugs is basically like players, you know, they were able to more freely express themselves. So that was one way to uh, express your wealth was with drugs and uh, buying these great cars. Uh, this is a great scene in Loose Balls where a coach recalls seeing, like, with the spirits, actually. Um, in fact, let me actually see the quote. The quote is fantastic. I have it right in front of me. Um, yeah, this dude says a huge silver Mercedes pulled up, and Maurice Lucas got out. Then he says Joe Caldwell came, and he got out of a Porsche. Then comes Fly Williams, and he gets out of a Cadillac. And then finally Marvin Barnes pulls up in his Rolls Royce. So it's just one player after another pulling up in these big, expensive cars. But unfortunately, uh, Marvin Barnes and players like him, they would just take it the next step, and they start uh, doing cocaine and all these, all these other drugs. They really ruined a lot of great players in uh, the ABA and the NBA. And, of course, an interesting part in the documentary is towards the end when they talk about the uh, the Salina deal. Is there any way you can sort of explain in depth of what it what – what it, first, what it was to uh, the listeners that don't really understand that, and also what it means now in the grand scheme of things? Uh, well, that's – they mentioned in the film, and I agree with them, uh, that's probably the best deal ever made in the history of sports, where basically for nothing you get four-sevenths of what it, it's like a, a full team in the NBA would obviously get like 100%. Uh, they get four-sevenths of what, what a team would get from TV revenue. So if a team gets like a million dollars a year, they get four-sevenths of a million dollars um, in perpetuity. Uh, so obviously that's, as TV contracts get bigger and bigger, uh, that's a bigger and bigger chunk of money that goes to these guys that really have – nothing to do with the NBA whatsoever anymore. So uh, I know in the documentary they mentioned how the league has tried to reopen negotiations or basically buy them out, but the guys, you know, they're not that, they're not stupid. They're going to keep the perpetuity. Um, why take a lump sum when for perpetuity you're going to keep getting money? So um, I don't think it's going to harm the NBA in any manner, but obviously they want to make as much money as possible. Uh, but those guys are making that pretty well. All right, of course, if you had to go back and uh... – remake this movie, what are some of the things that you would have added? You mentioned that this story could have gone on to an hour and a half, possibly more. What would you what yep. would you have added if you were directing the movie? Uh, I would have added, uh, obviously, you know, being, not, you know, being like the historian here, like I always like to have more context to the situation. So uh, a little bit more on players beyond Marvin Barnes, because um, he was obviously like the larger than life figure, but a lot of guys that were really worth talking about a little bit more. Uh, like, again, Freddie Lewis, a great basketball player. Uh, Steve Jones, 
uh, especially Maurice Lucas. That's a guy that really should have got more airtime because he, uh, like, they mentioned how, you know, he's the enforcer. Uh, that guy would go out there and you didn't mess with him. But uh, the very next, or uh, 75, he was with the Spirits. He got traded during the 76 season. And then in 77, when the ABA folded and joined the NBA, the remaining teams, uh, Lucas actually was on the Colonels. So he got traded to Kentucky, and uh, they were dispersed. And Lucas actually got drafted in a dispersal draft by the Portland Trailblazers. So it turns out he actually was the key piece that put Portland on a championship level, and they won the title in the NBA in 77. So uh, I think speaking more about him and his efforts uh, would have done a lot more for the film to show that there was some seriousness in the team because Lucas was a dead serious um, pro's pro. But um, it's not quite the stereotype the Spirits have. Like, they were definitely crazy, but there were some guys who were pretty serious about basketball on them. So uh, they could have drugged the movie out or actually expanded it to a proper length. They could have really gotten uh, more complexity on the on the on the way the team was run. And of course, looking at the uh, the stories of the spirits, how did they? they start, it's it's kind of funny how they're. A lot of it's pretty similar to uh, the NBA today, obviously minus the the big media markets and television, right? Mm-hmm. But the concept of it is pretty similar, is it not? Oh yeah, it's uh, yeah NBA. Got a lot from the ABA. Uh, the you know going back to the earlier comparison, like the NBA being more of a symphony, uh, they, the NBA definitely loosened up once it got, you know, it learned from the ABA how to put on a good product because of the, you know, the 1980s brand of basketball. You know, the Showtime Lakers and uh, those Denver Nuggets teams. Like obviously that's an ABA team that goes in the NBA. But uh, yeah, they're free flowing style. Like the offense picked up tremendously in the late 70s and 80s after these ABA teams joined the NBA. But, uh, yeah, the, the three-point line, uh, the emphasis on you know, allowing players to be more free, to play more of a loose style, uh, obviously allow more dunks. Uh, it really stylistically helped change the NBA, made the game more pleasing for fans to watch. All right, and one last thing before, uh, before we end it. I understand that uh, the NBA is uh, tipped off and the preseason is going on. season is going to start soon. Have any predictions for what team is uh, sort of the one to look out for? Oh, there's a. I think there's actually a good handful to look out for uh, in the East. Obviously, the Miami Heat, since they've won two straight titles and been in three straight finals, they're the team to really uh, look out for. So I still put them as the favorite if everybody stays healthy. The, they're the favorite to win it out of the East, but uh, the Bulls. They can make some happen. I'm not quite as sold to them as some people are. But I actually think the Pacers are still the second-best team in the East. And the Brooklyn Nets, they can be the dark horse, but, you know, they got those – they got old horses on their team, so some of those guys are going to the glue factory uh, this season. Uh, then out in the West, I think it's actually pretty wide open. Um, the Clippers and the Spurs, I bet it's the two favorites. The Thunder, uh, still not quite sold on their bench anymore, uh, but as long as they got Durant and healthy Westbrook, they can make something happen. And I guess the Rockets would be the dark horse in the, in the West if uh, Dwight Howard and James Harden can really can gel together really quick and uh, learn how to work together real good. Uh, but, yeah, I think there's four teams in each conference that can win the conference and then make it to the finals um, in each, in each uh, division or uh, each conference. All right, he's Curtis Harris, creator of Pro Hoops History and our – resident basketball historian. Thanks once again, Curtis, for taking the time joining us. Yeah, no problem, Mike. All right, of course, no more baseball talking on Fnatic Radio. Oh, yeah. CS starting tonight, Dodgers, Cardinals, and the ALCS 
is the bow socks and the, don't tell me, I should know this, Sasha Tigers, after Justin Verlander, ran reckless last night, shutting down an Oakland A's team, had no Bortolo Colon, I was very upset he was not uh, starting a must-win game for the A's. But according to Beef 360, who do you have making the World Series? You know, we got uh, one thing I will say, we got a group blown show, because we start talking about this at the top of the show, then we have the long call. Go to commercial, play the long interview. Now we're getting back into it. We got it. We got to We're full circling. We're full circling. always find a way. It's, it's, we got we got to step up. We got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. Uh, but, yeah, so LCS starts tonight, PBS. Tomorrow night, LCS starts on Fox. I got to get LA and St. Louis. And I like LA, and I think they're actually going to win it pretty in a pretty solid fashion. I got them winning in five. St. Louis, very good team, good pitching. But for me to keep the doubt is that you're going to go. Is that right? Yeah, I tonight against Joe Kelly. They think get Kershaw at some point. Neither of them are going to be facing up against Adam Wainwright, mm. which I think is a big advantage for L.A. Plus, their offense is looking tremendous right now. Paul Crawford's been great. Henry Ramirez as well. Henry Ramirez got the our good friend uh, Juan Uribe. So, good stuff. And I think the Dodgers will come out of that. I think the Tigers-Red Sox, too. I think that is in the ALC. I think that's a fantastic series. Both teams have a lot of power. They have good pitching. But I think that the Tigers, I give them a very slight edge because they're stronger at the front of the rotation. Max is probably going to win the Cy Young. Justin Verlander, who was awesome last night. Plus, the other guy, Animal Sanchez, has been very good this year. And Doug Fister, who's a personal friend of mine. Yeah, Cabrera, who is, is killing it as well. well I, like, I like the Red Sox, though. They, watching them play the Rays, they're, they're, they're a very good team. It's amazing what a, man, what a managerial change can do to change a team around. From a, from a Red Sox team that was just awful last year. Similar personnel. Then you have Shane Victorino. Then you have David Ortiz, who's been playing great so far in the playoffs. Mm. Good pitching. Uh, John Lester. Mm. So, yeah, Red Sox, Red Sox, Dodgers. Mike Poppy, our, our guest earlier, he said L.A. Boston World Series, which would be uh, great for TV. Absolutely. And speaking of L.A., and speaking of the Dodgers, Fanny Johnson, no longer on uh, NBA countdown. Yeah. 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 Nice little, uh, little segue there. Um, so apparently a lot of people are saying uh, he was pushed out by Bill Simmons. I'm not necessarily I don't necessarily agree with that um, because he's going to be on the Bill Simmons podcast next week. So who knows? I mean, I'm a little skeptical of that. Um, I will say though that I'm not surprised. I'm not. I'm not disappointed. I'm, I'm very surprised because they came way out of the blue. They had their announced they're going to be Doug Collins, uh, very good, and they're going to have uh, George Berkman, Collins doing Wednesday night games. She's going to be in the studio, which is I think both are great moves. And then really out of the blue, you have George Bur or you have Magic Johnson saying, "Oh, I'm not going to be on the ESPN." Mm. So completely leave completely without mind because Magic Johnson sucks. Awful broadcaster. The worst thing about that show is that for years, at least until this year, 
Everyone, like, they all cowered to magic. And they moved that, people forget, they moved that show to L.A. for magic, so it be on more. And everyone, especially in Wilbon, was sad at me, because Wilbon can be very good. They would always cower to him, and they'd kiss his ass. Yeah. And he's not a barker where he can carry a show like that. Sure. Magic's a bit, I mean, well, when he went on TNT with Barkley, mm-hmm. when he was on for a few years before he went to ABC, he was pretty solid because he wasn't, like, he was kind of in the background, and, you know, all the folks on Barkley, he had Kenny Smith, he had EJ, and EJ gets the best out of, he gets the best out of anybody right now. I got it. They've done a good job with the uh, baseball calls, too. What, what what kind of segue is that? We're talking about Magic Johnson. I know. They mentioned EJ. Oh, yeah. So, he's, he's solid baseball. Obviously, better in studio. But, um, qu- quite frankly, uh, Magic Johnson was awful. Like, when he came out, he started broadcasting at NBC. He was, he was awful. Back in the early 90s. Yeah. You know, on the top crew. Watching you be like kind of the second crew of Dick Enberg, Steve Jones. Dick Enberg in NBA. Absolutely. You know, number two yet for a few years. It's, yeah, interesting move, though, with uh, putting Doris Burke on the NBA countdown. Because mm-hmm. now you have this, this sort of new pioneering thing. We talked in Sports Zone about the uh, David Pollock comments about Condoleezza Rice. Yeah. Uh, Rachel Nichols, she's getting her own shows uh, October 25th, Unguarded on CNN. And then you also have Doris yeah. Burke joining Countdown. Yeah. So, the final thing, the uh, CBS, or not CBS, what is it? Frontline. Yeah, PBS. CBS. Close. Frontline, League of Denial. We, we, uh, we plugged it last week. We watched it on Tuesday. and Tremendous. Yes, very very shocked also from what the, uh, the NFL knew, especially uh, Paul Tagliabue. Oh, yeah, that was. Didn't I expect well, so much, a lot of the things, like, always, they've never, like, been fully reported. So a lot of things, like, a lot of things nobody knew about. You're not going to I thought it was a very powerful and certainly compelling um, piece by uh, by Frontline and, of course, by the journal you know, from the book of uh, Mark Mirawada uh, and uh, his brother, I think David I mean, a lot of people were saying, like, to to maybe the Wilkers on, like, it's it was relatively fair one sided. They really presented from the other side. It didn't do. It didn't really uh, present like the NFL's case in point that much, although they did interview some NFL guests. But to be fair, the NFL had wanted no interest in this because they made it clear from the get go. And as you've seen. That every step of the way, when somebody was trying to say that concussions are a problem, the NFL kept on denying it, which is shocking because the whole the whole thing behind you think the NFL's position is that they don't want to ruin the game, they don't want people to stop playing football because of fear of concussions. But if you tackle the, if you address the problem and you tackle it, and you do a good job saying, all right, this is how we have to change the game and how we play to prevent it from happening, that would that would probably, you know, negate any people that would stop playing football and bring people back if they're shown that there's an emphasis on, you know, the safety, preventing concussions, and all that. Which is what uh, Commissioner Goodell is doing. Absolutely. Or at least what he's saying. Right. The heads up, heads up initiative, I think, started last year. Yeah, but they said that, but it, it 
Roger Goodall keeps on saying, oh, we don't, we're waiting on this, we're waiting for research that's not conclusive about like concussions and CTE. Like they, they showed, it was the, uh, the doctor at Boston University, Dr. Ann McKee, who showed up like, I think it was like 40 or 50 uh, brains they discovered a football player. 47 brains, the research, 45 of them had CTE. That included uh, a college player and a high school player. Neither of them had real concussion issues. And all of them, like, yeah, the guy's guy a pen. Absolutely. There's hard, solid evidence that the NFL can't deny. But the NFL said for years has decided to play the game of uh, shoot the messenger. Like, they're, you know, somebody's trying to take down the NFL. And usually a lot of times when people try to take down the NFL, the NFL completely shuts them down. And this is something that they're not going to be able to shut They were able to uh, get, force ESPN to pull out of it. Yeah. Which they certainly were, and everybody saw them when ESPN pulled out of it. Oh, the front line. Because there's, uh, at least Barbara Iwata works for ESPN, which right that line. Both of them are investigative reporters. Absolutely. So everybody knew that when they pulled out, it was obvious. I mean, they tried to spin it, but it was like, come on, you can't. It was, you're clearly the NFL, and then it was, there was a report from the guy who wrote the book, uh, Those Guys Have All the Fun. It was in the New York Times saying that ESPN was clearly pressured by the NFL to pull it. But hopefully this sparks a big change going forward because it needs to happen. And how soon, though? I think it's a big question. How soon? I think you got to do it. I mean, obviously there's a huge amount of damage control in the NFL Academy because this is a big problem. Because they went like, like two decades. Yeah. And the guy was running that they had their little brain survey. He was not a neurolo- neurologist. No, he, is. He, was like, he was like a team doctor that they're, I forget what it's called, like a rheumologist or something like that. Mm-hmm. And their specialty is like broken bones and arthritis and stuff like that. But clearly the guy's not qualified. And so they had a guy from the Giants who just denied They have a bunch of hacks for the NFL that have that are continually denied instead of trying to address the problem. So it very was as a fan of the NFL that um, I'm very shocked and disappointed that this is going on. We need change. We need change quick. What kind of change? Well, I mean, it's hard to say, but the NFL, I think what they have to do is they have to be, all right, there clearly is a, it can, there's an issue here. There's connection between you know, playing football, getting concussions, and getting TT. This is not like it's not a small sample. Like it's clearly shown. So they need to they need to first admit they need to first false. admit that, that it is true. Of course, it's true. It's scientific evidence. Of course, like you know, NIH is involved in this. Absolutely, it's just insane. The NFL is in huge trouble. The other teams, NFL teams, are in trouble. Undefeated. Who will fall this week? We had. The Patriots lose to the Bengals. Yeah. Your Super Bowl making it Bengals. Uh-huh. Uh, who's the next, the next undefeated team to fall? And then you're saying the Chiefs, Denver, Jacksonville. Uh, well, there are only, there's three undefeated left. you got New Orleans, and Thursday. But they looked good this year. They looked very good. Yeah. I thought they'd be very good, and they looked even better than I thought they'd be. I thought with Peyton coming back, they were going to be loaded. I think the easy answer to this so, it is, actually, it's a very tough question because this week I have two of the undefeateds going down. Ooh. 
So I've got the Saints. They're going to Foxborough. Mm. So I think they're going to fall there. And I think that's going to be a tough game. Good game. See the other uh, it is a Fox game. Uh, Tom Brennan and Troy Aikman. I thought it was Bucks with baseball. Yep. And outside of the Chiefs losing to the Raiders in Oakland. Yeah, I think they're going to have perfect goodness. Yeah, I think they're going to have sure they're playing in Kansas City. But I think Oakland, they've been solid. They've been competitive for a prior. given some life on offense. So I think that, I think both those teams are going to, I think the team that guaranteed them the key by going forward because they have the opportunity of playing the disgracefully bad. The London Jaguars. The London Jaguars in this week, and that's just going to be a brutal game. But then next week, they got, they're going in the Apple. They look very good. Tatum's return, and you can cover that next week. Absolutely. How good are the Broncos? Uh, very good. I mean, the, the defense isn't great, but the numbers are being inflated because the offense is so good, so the teams are having to pass. So right now, they have the worst passing defense in the NFL. But their offense is specifically the passing offense. Their running game is fantastic. I've seen the last time you mentioned on sports on the O7 Patriots. Yep. And that team was dynamite as well because that's when they had Randy Moss. Dynamite. And Brady was just going on a tear. But surprisingly, with Noah Miller, they're still able to stand defeated. Granted, the game against the Cowboys, you're correct. The defense is just is very bad. But he comes. when does he come back? Or is he out for the season? Well, no, is he going to come back? Six-game suspension, he'll be back against the Colts? I believe so, yes. And he gets right into the defense. And I'm pretty sure he will not miss a beat when he comes back. But is, is, it, is it the core receivers that have just stepped up in the tight end of the other Thomas, of Marius Thomas? Yeah, I mean, well, Julius Thomas, the thing is with him is, like, he was very good in the day. But... I mean, he's been solid. I think he's being overrated because everyone looks at what he did in the first game. I mean, he's been solid. But, and he actually did look uh, very good. I don't know. But I think everyone's like, all right, well, this guy's great. But, like, do the receivers have had two very good games? Are the receivers, or is it just Peyton Manning? Well, I think the receivers, you have a very good receiving core. You've got a deep threat in Demarius Jones. You've got a good possession physical guy. And Decker, you got Wes Welker, he's a huge goal in the middle in this lot. But I think it really will start with Tom Brady. Well, not Tom Brady, but I mean, uh, Peyton Manning. Because he has just been, like, this was the biggest start of his career. And you wouldn't expect that. He's been in like, 14th year in the NFL or something like that. So he's been, he's been brilliant. Who did they lose to then? I mean, look at their schedule. They have the, they have the Jaguars, they have the Colts. The skin, yeah, which is a fantastic game. My good friend Gerard Lee, loved Gerard. Lee is full of support. And then they have the Chargers. I mean, how could you see a team that they would lose to? Um, well, they're going to New England. Um, so there's that. It's a great game. That, again, and, that's and, that's the, and I have to call I think the teams are so good offensively. But I think that defensively, the fact that they are getting gashed right now, even though they are winning. But I think defensively, I think that they're. I don't. I don't think this team's going to go 16. I think they'll. I think you're probably see a 15, 1, 14, and two. Okay. Maybe lose. You had the 13 and three. Uh, uh, less than that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you might have won like 10 and 6, 11 and 5. Yeah. Of course, the schedule they've been playing. Yeah. You're due to the Chiefs uh, being the worst team last year. The easiest schedule. 
And so naturally, every team in their division gets to play the same opponent. So that's where you have the Jaguars. That's where you have the Colts, the uh, the football giants who have just been awful this year. Yeah. It's funny they mentioned that the offense is just making up the defense. That's actually how ironically how my high school football team was because our defense was pretty bad. We'd always be bad, but we run the spread offense, so we'd score like 70 points a game. Granted, games would be like, when we could, especially when we get into the playoffs, because in our district or our conference, we would just destroy teams because every team we played was trash, the exception of a few others. But when we get into the playoffs, it'd always be a shootout. Always play a really good team with a good running back. Our defense couldn't stop them, and they, the team was just as equal. So, but also, uh, speaking of interesting segue here, we my high school, we played Rockwell Heath, and a graduate of Rockwell Heath was Ken Dial Lawrence who is a former running back of the Missouri Tigers, who you have upsetting the Georgia Bulldogs this weekend. Uh, yes, I do. For our final four. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think uh, Georgia is bound for a loss. They also have Tennessee in a great game. They all have Tennessee, and Tennessee, Tennessee really hasn't been that good this year. Although Tennessee's play call, especially on fourth down, was awesome. And I was really hoping for Tennessee to win. But Georgia, I mean, it is when you are playing between the edges. Georgia's had a lot of injuries to the field positions. Oh, so all the receivers are gone. Yeah, the second string of receivers are playing Knoxville. Absolutely. And what? And they live. They've been living on the edge all year. The defense hasn't been that good. Meanwhile, Mizzou has a very good chance. Franklin has been great for the Tigers. He's come back after the injury mark and consistent 2012 for him. So, and I think this is a solid Missouri team. I don't think they're you know. Big contenders in the SEC, of course. But I think they're going to go in and against a Georgia team, a good Georgia team, but they're having injury issues. And, again, the living game very dangerously, coming down to the last minute and all that, which is fine. But I think I really think the Mizzou is going to go in and get their first statement win since being in the, uh, since being in the SEC and their biggest win since they beat Oklahoma at home in Oklahoma number one a couple of years ago in uh, 2010. That's so some game day was, was there, right? That's right. Most, most attended game day ever. And an uh, interesting fact, as we, had, as we close out the show, speaking of Oklahoma, the Red River Shootout is this weekend. 50th anniversary. It's very cool what Nike's doing. I think they gold trim on the jersey. A historic robbery that I hope stayed in the Cotton Bowl because there were threats that they were going to move, rumors they were going to move to AT&T Stadium. To get more fans, obviously. Let's keep it in the combo. 90,000 packs for a stadium that is half crimson, half burnt orange. It's a, a game that's close to my heart. It's going to school with everyone's parents, the Texas or Oklahoma alums, or Texas a alums, hate Texas and Oklahoma. It's very cool to see the uh, Crawford River rivalry. It's like uh, Rutgers and Louisville, <laughs> as our good friend Mike Francesa hates. But I'll do it. For this show, uh, this week's episode of Fanatic Radio, check out the podcast on iTunes, check us out on ATV, YouTube, b 360 Creator, and first of all, congratulations on a million page views. We had a wonderful soiree last night, honoring Kurt Amworth, which will contributed. Also, like I said, let's slide in a little uh, congrats to the, uh, the million. So, two million is the next, where we just have a cookout in the backyard of Nebraska Hall. That'll do it. Go online to podcast, blogtalkradio.com, slash radio. Listen to it on iTunes, Curtis Harris, Mike Pompeo. 
AF Ice this weekend. And Star Wars to bounce back. Steel Hockey takes on number one panel on Sunday at 1 p.m. For Ben Flux, I'm Michael Gardner saying so long. We will see you next time.